Asuka had always been a young nerd. The kind of kid who read Tom Swift, who loved comic books, and watched Ultraman, but by high school his commitment to the genres had become absolute. Back when the rest of us were learning to play wall ball and pitch quarters and drive our older brother's cars and sneak dead soldiers from under our parents' eyes, he was gorging himself on the steady stream of Lovecraft, Wells, Burroughs, Howard, Alexander, Herbert, Asimov, Bova, and Heinlein, and even the old ones who were already beginning to fade, E.E. E. Doc Smith, Stapledon, and the guy who wrote all the Doc Savage books, moving hungrily from book to book, author to author, age to age. It was his good fortune that the libraries of Patterson were so underfunded that they still kept a lot of the previous generation's nerdery in circulation. You couldn't have torn him away from any movie or TV show, a cartoon where there were monsters or spaceships or mutants or doomsday devices or destinies or magic or evil villains. In these pursuits alone, Oscar showed the genius his grandmother and sister was part of the family patrimony. Could write in Elvish, could speak Chakopsa, could differentiate between a slan, a dorsi, and a lensman in acute detail. Knew more about the Marvel Universe than Stan Lee and was a role-playing game fanatic. If only he'd been good at video games, it would have been a slam dunk, but despite owning an Atari and an Intellivision, he didn't have the reflexes for it. Perhaps if, like me, he'd been able to hide his otakuness, maybe shit would have been easier for him, but he couldn't. Dude wore his nerdiness like a Jedi wore his lightsaber, or a lensman her lens. Couldn't have passed for normal if he wanted to. What's going on, everybody? Nelson Santiago here, co-host of Homies Lit, and welcome to episode four. Today, we're going to talk about The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde, a novel written by Juno Diaz. Hi, what's up, everybody? This is your co-host, Randy. Welcome to episode four of Homies Lit. Um, So kind of like every other episode, I'm going to start off by talking about our author, who is actually my favorite fiction author currently, Juno Diaz. Um, so for Oscar Wilde, he won the he won a lot of awards for this book actually. Um, but the biggest one, the biggest literary prize you can get in the country, the Pulitzer Prize for fiction, um, he won that in I want to say 2007, 2008. And this book focuses a lot on um, Dominican history, uh, what it means to be Afro-Dominican. In a lot of ways, what it means to be a Black Dominican, um, to be an immigrant. So we're gonna we have a lot of layers that we're gonna try to knock out for you all in as concise a manner as we possibly can. Uh, this is the longest book we've dealt with, so bear with us. Um, but some history on Juno Diaz. Um, he was originally born in the Dominican Republic in the capital of Santo Domingo, um, and he immigrated to the United States with his family when he was a kid. And he has he's published three books of fiction now. Uh, he has a children's book, but we're not going to focus on that. Um, the first book he published in 96 is called Drown. And it's where we first get an introduction to the character who we later find out is also the narrator of Oscar Wilde. His name is Junior de las Casas. And then he has a book that comes out after Oscar Wilde. It was released about five years later called This Is How You Lose Her, which focuses more on Junior as a teenager as an, as an adult, whereas Drown, we get a lot of uh, insight into Junior as a child. Um, 
And a lot of the stories are semi-autobiographical, which means they're based um, very heavily on details from Juno Diaz's life. Though, of course, like with any other writer, um, there's denial that, you know, this is Juno Diaz. Uh, he says that he takes kind of like Sandra Cisneros told us in the Authors Insights episode, takes composites of different people throughout his life and puts them into the characters in his book, particularly Junior, who has a lot of similarities with Juno Diaz. And before we dive into the book, uh, particularly the two quotes that open up the book, um, which will help guide our discussion, we're just going to give a quick disclaimer that if you do any research on Juno Diaz now, you will most likely find articles that mention mostly verbal abuses on behalf of him against women, female writers that he's interacted with. So we're well aware that we are aware that in some ways he was consumed by the Me Too movement um, and he hasn't been very active since. So we just want to throw that out there. So any listeners who think that we're ignoring these uh, implications, we're not. And we're actually going to talk about this in the second part of this episode uh, when we talk about depictions of masculinity in the book and relate that to broader Latinx culture and just American culture and male culture in general. So we just want to throw that out there so that you're aware we will be talking about that just later on. But to open up the book, we have two quotes, uh, one of which contains some pretty strong language, but it was written in literature. It was meant to be read, and thus I will read it. But our first quote that opens up the book um, is actually a quote from the Fantastic Four, which I found really surprising when I opened up the book. But when you dive into the book, I'm sure uh, it's the same case for Nelson. Like You really realize it's not that strange because there's a lot of sci-fi and shit in comics incorporated. But our first quote is... Quote, of what import are brief, nameless lives to Galactus? Unquote. Fantastic Four, Stan Lee and Jack Kirby, Volume 1, Number 49, April 1966. So there's our first one. And our second quote is from Derek Walcott. He was a Nobel Prize laureate, uh, and poet, mostly for his poetry, um, from the island of St. Lucia. It was a former British colony, a very small island. Uh, he's the only laureate from... Uh, that island in the Caribbean, and he faced a lot of racism and segregation growing up in that colony and then moving back and forth between uh, universities that were run by the British. He was very much ostracized by them. And then eventually, when he started to gain international stature, they tried to then uh, claim him, basically, uh, but he pushed back against that. And this is from... Um, perhaps his most famous poem where he adapted the Odyssey into, well, a Caribbean form of that. So here it is. Christ have mercy on all sleeping things from that dog riding down Wrightson road to when I was a dog on these streets. If loving these islands must be my load out of corruption, my soul takes wings, but they had started to poison my soul with their big house, big car, big time behold. Coolie, nigger, Syrian, and French Creole, so I leave it for them and their carnival. I, taking a sea bath, I gone down the road. I know these islands from Manos to Nassau, a rusty-head sailor with sea-green eyes that they nicknamed Shabin, the patois for any red nigger. And I, Shabin, saw, these, saw when these slums of empire was paradise. I'm just a red nigger who loved the sea. I had a sound colonial education. I have Dutch, nigger, and English in me, and either I'm nobody or I'm a nation. 
So these are the two quotes that open up our book. Uh, and before we really dive into um, what these quotes really mean for the overall arc of the book, I just kind of want to talk about um, my impressions and Nelson's impressions, like just kind of getting these at the beginning, then generally reading the book and kind of what we thought the connections were. So when I first read it, had a general idea and it kind of makes sense it's the writing is very forward uh and what it's trying to do but yeah i think we'll start light and then we'll dive into the deep shit because this book does have a lot of deep shit so you want to jump in yeah so be honest i just didn't give much thought to the fantastic four um little quote there but like you said I, if you read once you start reading this guy's Oscar's a fucking nerd. So that was, you know, that one makes like total sense. Like there's, there's a shit ton of movies, sci-fi, comic book, fucking Dungeons Dragons, all kinds of shit in there. Yeah. So like a lot of lore. yeah, that one kind of just throws you in there. I guess it's just more like, a, I guess a shout out and tribute to his, uh, you know, his childhood. You know what I mean? The, I mm-hmm. guess the brighter side to it. Um, and then obviously we have the poem by Derek Walcott. Um, so you read it, obviously, I. it really just sets the tone for what you should expect to go on as you read the story. The language, which I'm sure some people are thinking, like, wow, this is really vulgar, guys. But, you know, every episode is explicit, guys. So, you know. Um, but, yeah, it really does just set the tone for the type of, uh, you know, that's the vocabulary throughout the whole thing. And uh, let's just be honest, that just sets uh, for people who aren't, from these areas it really just sets the tone for the reality it really just shocks you right into it that way you're just ready to actually read it because i do think if we just had the fantastic four little quote and then just hopped into the shit they're talking about in here you'd be a little caught off guard and yeah a little salty too like well motherfucker i wasn't ready for this right but no i mean it really does that that poem really does set the tone because i mean it's heavy this is just some. This is a dense ass book, by the way, guys. Like all the shit that's going on in here for the for the readers who are who are picking up books as we suggest them. Brace yourself because, <laughs> I mean, it's not like the Bible in length, right? But you could stack the Outsiders and you could stack all three of them books, and you'll probably be at about this book, and that's the truth. Besides proceeding the end of the world, Outsiders and House on Mango Street. Yeah, no shit. I'll be would be about this book. So it is long. There's a lot to talk about in here, but I can tell you from start to finish, that's the kind of language that you're going to be dealing with in here. It's pretty heavy uh, and it's just really intense, but that it really just does a, the book itself, it just does a, a very good job of like throwing you right into that mix. Like if this kind of shit would make you feel uncomfortable in person, then you'll probably feel a little bit uncomfortable in the book. But that's the feeling that I'm just going to go ahead and assume, can't speak for the man, but I'm going to go ahead and assume that's the feeling that he was trying to give off because it's real. It's the reality of the situation. Yeah. Yeah. It is a very, it is an extremely forward book, um, which is something I always appreciated. I mean, I remember when I actually first picked this up, I picked it up from my favorite bookshop, which is called The Book Table. It's in Oak Park, Illinois, just outside of Chicago. So, I mean, if they're open, you know, give them some love. But I remember I opened the first page and Yunya just jumped straight into talking about this curse that he calls a fuku, which we'll uh, jump into really soon. And how 
this has kind of plagued not just Oscar and his family, but the Dominican people since the beginning of their existence, since their inception, right? When the colonizers um, landed in Dominican Republic as the first uh, colony. But yeah, when I first opened the book, I read the language and I was like, God damn, like I've never actually read anything that sounds like it would come from, you know, one of my homies mouths. So, you know, my mouth, my brother's mouth. Um, so it was, you know, it was, it was really fascinating and also just very refreshing. But anyway, I did some research on this fantastic four quote because, I mean, I read a decent amount of comics as a kid, but I never fucked with Fantastic Four. I can't tell you why. It just wasn't for me. I was more of an X-Men dude. But so Galactus, when you look him up, actually, if you look up photos on Google, he's a big motherfucker. Like, dude is literally a an annihilator of planets. Like, Dude walks in, he blows shit up, and that's it, right? His name is Galactus, kind of like queuing into the galaxy. So he has this power to completely end the world with like the snap of a finger. And they're begging the question of what import are brief, nameless lives, right? And I think one word we should just focus on is brief. It's also in the title of our book, The Brief Wondrous Life of Oscar Wilde. And just focusing on the title, we can assume that Oscar is going to die, right? His life is brief. But that connects us directly to the quote of that opens up our book, the first one, um, of what import are brief, nameless lives, right? So Galactus, in his mind, no one matters because he has ultimate rule. And you'll see as we talk about the book, the Dominican Republic deals with a very long dictatorship that lasted for several decades. Um, and, I mean, as any dictatorship goes along, and as we know from history, a lot of the motherfuckers die in the process. A lot of people are silenced. A lot of freedoms are taken away. So I think that's what this quote is trying to hearken to. And I mean, as Nelson said, the Derek Walcott one, I feel like you read the book, you get this very just straight on the language isn't, I mean, I wouldn't call it vulgar. Some people might, um, but it's, it's very straightforward. And uh, the book focuses a lot on race relations and colonialism. Um, but I think the most important line for us here is the final one where he says, either I'm nobody or I'm a nation. Uh, we're going to break that down a bit um, for our first topic of discussion, which is the idea of diaspora. It's brought up several times throughout the book, uh, especially in relation to Oscar's mother and Dominican people as a whole. And yeah, Nelson will give us a definition, a general definition of what diaspora means, and then we'll just jump into the book from here. And we'll probably hop around a bit with the discussion because, again, it is very dense, but we'll be sure to hit all the marks that we feel you should know. All right, yeah. Um, for starters, you know, Randy probably just didn't fuck with Fantastic Four because those movies were garbage. True, the movies were garbage. Um, also, guys, if you don't know who Galactus is, for the guys who are just playing games and shit, like, you know, he's the big fucking dude you fight at the end of Marvel versus Capcom 3. He's got, like, the helmet that looks like a fucking soccer goal and shit. That's Galactus. Now to the more important part here. Diaspora, by definition, is the dispersion of any people from their original homeland. If you look it up, they, they reference the dispersion of Jews. Um, and then, let's see... Diaspora was used to refer to the involuntary mass dispersion of a population from its indigenous territories. So, you know, you think about um, Africans just pretty much getting plucked away 
involuntarily. Well, we see plenty of examples of this pretty much. Um, and they ha- they mention it here, but it's obviously in the book, but it's obviously not like the slave trade kind of thing. But it, it's just uh, the overall like general term, which is just the involuntary dispersion of any people from their original homeland. And Randy can uh, dive into the specifics of it in this book. Yeah, so again, we won't get too deep into the history of the actual real-life history of the book, like focusing on Dominican Republic, things like that, because that would just take way too much time. And if you want to know, you have Google, and of course, you have the book. Um, He does have footnotes in it, which is really unusual for a fiction book. But I watched an interview, and he explained that he added footnotes, some of which are like a fucking page long. These things are dense. But he explains um, history very well in them. Um, which I think is pretty dope, to be honest. The first one, he actually takes the time to talk about Dominican history, and he talks about um, the dictator. So I'm going to read that section real quick, and then we'll dive in. I'm only going to read it because this shit's kind of funny. So about um, Trujillo, which was the name of the dictator, says he was a portly, sadistic, pig-eyed mulatto who bleached his skin, wore platform shoes, and had a fondness for Napoleon-era haberdashery. Drujillo, also known as El Jefe, the failed cattle thief, and fuckface, came to control nearly every aspect of the DR's political, cultural, social, and economic life through a potent and familiar mixture of violence, intimidation, massacre, rape, co-optation, and terror, treated the country like it was a plantation and he was the master. So I feel like this is the perfect quote to read from to kind of dive into this because, again, diaspora is the involuntary dispersion of people from their indigenous land. Again, we know history tells us that when something grave happens to a population, for instance, the Holocaust, uh, another example, the slave trade, Another example, the Bosnian genocide, you know, we can list them forever. The dictatorship in Dominican Republic, um, currently in Puerto Rico, economic uh, downfall and the aftermath of Hurricane Maria, right? Large swaths of those people from those territories tend to move to countries that they deem to be safer, right? And the United States, in the case of Dominicans and, well, really everyone from all those populations I named, um, except for the Africans, they didn't have a choice, um, wound up here. So here we learn that this is because of Duhio, who is this dictator who ruled with, you know, very much an iron fist and had complete control over the island. So much so that like, people were afraid to even trust their neighbors because they thought that the neighbors might rat them out. And then, you know, they'd fucking get pulled over by the police for, you know, what they call a quote, like, you know, a check-in, and then, you know, you're getting beat to death and thrown into cane fields, which is something that actually happens in the book on several occasions. But so focusing on diaspora, I kind of want to dive into the discussion um, about what diaspora means in, for us in our lives. You know, our families are from Puerto Rico, but we weren't born in Puerto Rico. We've never, at least I've never actually been to Puerto Rico. I don't know about Nelson. But kind of talking about what that entails uh, for us, what that entails in the book, and how it affects the characters in the book, um, and what the broader implications for that are. Because when you read the book, Oscar Wow, his Oscar's name is in the title, but me and Nelson were talking about this actually before we went live. Um, he doesn't even take up half of the book, maybe not even a third of the book's attention. But 
we get this entire history of his family, all that led up to Oscar in the present day, and then that ultimately leads to his death, right? And there are tons of implications there. So through this discussion, uh, we're going to try to break that down for you a bit. Yeah, guys. So for starters, don't be discouraged uh, to not um, read the book now or to think, (laughs) damn, we know he's dead because I forgot about this fucking dude by the time we got there. There's so much shit going on in this book. It's like the title is probably just an honorable mention to the man, I swear. I swear. <laughs> and as far as whether or not I've been to Puerto Rico, I actually volunteered after uh, the the hurricane and shit. So that was the only time I was actually there. Um, so, you know, I just so happened to go there when everybody had no choice but to pick up and go. So, yeah, I did see, like, you know, I went there and everything was like a fucking disaster. You know, we were going there for, like, help and medical aid and shit like that. So, yeah. And, you know, at that time when I went there, people were forced. They had pretty much no choice if they could. And they had the means to, which not a lot of people did, to leave. And, yeah, like Randy said, um, yeah, we we weren't born in Puerto Rico. Um, we we were born here in Chicago. Yeah, my mom was, like, born in New York. Our dad, yeah, even our fucking parents were born here. Yeah. But, yeah, everyone's here. So we're all, like, super, you know, like, fucking Americanized or whatever the fuck. You know, we don't. We don't have that like connection or anything. And on top of that, we didn't even talk to our fucking family. So whatever, whatever was like bridging that mm-hmm. is uh, absolutely gone. Funny thing is I was actually listening to a podcast about, it was about real estate, but these guys were talking and the guy's an immigrant. And then he just talks about how he came as an immigrant with his parents, but his, like his friends and shit, their parents' parents came as immigrants so now they're like twice removed from the feeling of being an immigrant because now they're like they're american so they don't have those feelings or concerns or they don't know like that struggle or what shit went on over there so there's like that disconnect and i guess it's kind of like you know what happened with us on top of that obviously our parents are even our grandparents weren't immigrants right from puerto rico but still they did come to what would be deemed a totally new place for them especially around the time whenever the fuck it is that they came out here yeah yeah, and that's a that's a big focus. Um, I mean, I'm glad you mentioned the like that twice removed thing, like from the feeling of being an immigrant, because it's a big focus in the book. Even though Oscar's mother is an immigrant um, or was, I mean, it's never really confirmed if she actually has citizenship in the book, um, which I guess doesn't really matter. Um, but yeah, they don't. She sends them back to Dominican Republic in order to like truly understand what it means to have come from a place like that and to understand like regardless of the fact that like they they're pretty impoverished you know they live in inner city new jersey their mother is extremely abusive i remember actually like taking notes as i was reading this uh one of the first notes i took was oscar's mom is quote normal unquote abusive to him you know she's dismissive but she's very abusive to lola and that we get told that Lola, you know, she gets beatings from the mom, like literally with anything she can find. She's always berating her, like she's calling her out of her name. And the entire time, like every time I read that, I was just like, damn, this kind of sounds a lot like my mom. But my mom, she had more of a connection with her Puerto Rican upbringing, right? Like her mother was born on the island. She spent time with our great grandmother who was born on the island. So she had this sort of like, weird she's kind of i'd say maybe in a in a state of limbo where we clearly didn't understand that like we had i mean we never heard anything of it but 
um, we didn't get the opportunity to fully dive into that, whereas Oscar and his sister Lola are kind of forced to, um, in the case of Lola, as a punishment. And when she goes to the Dominican Republic, she realizes very quickly that they don't view her as Dominican. Like in the States, she tells people she's Dominican. And the DR, like they're all like, she's, uh, they call her gringa. They say she's American or they call her the black girl because she's dark, right? And there's a lot of colorism in the book, something we'll focus on because this is very much like an uh, anti-racist book, I would say. Um, but yeah, there's this, there's this weird connect and I've sort of like through all the reading and some of the research I've done and just talking to making more friends who were originally born in Puerto Rico, like there's this sort of degree of separation that happens when even in Puerto Rico, like as Nelson said, it, it is technically U.S. territory, right? So people who come from Puerto Rico aren't immigrants, but when you read their stories, if you took the label away, the moniker of Puerto Rican or Dominican, Cuban, Mexican, Guatemalan, the stories sound almost exactly the same, which is sort of disturbing because Puerto Ricans, they should theoretically have the same privileges as Americans, right? But when you actually look into the fine print, that sure as hell ain't the case. But I've learned, though, that a lot of Puerto Ricans who are born in what they call the mainland, when they go onto the island, they're treated as... Americans, right? Not Puerto Ricans. Puerto Ricans would not call themselves Americans, right? They refer to themselves and the island as a nation. So it creates this interesting dynamic between diaspora, which is something that's centered on the book, as a thing not necessarily to be proud of, but as sort of like a missing link on the chain that would connect these people that left the island to go to a different country and those that stayed um, it creates this very strange and intense complication with the characters, um, as we see, like in the histories of Belly, Oscar's mom, his sister Lola, and Oscar himself. Um, so I'll kind of use that to transition a bit to because again, Oscar kind of gets no love in the book. Like even when I mean, you'll see from the introduction, uh, as you'll listen to you're opening up this episode like even when they're talking about oscar performing his hobbies which is his reading and writing dude gets shitted on like royally um so we kind of want to talk about oscar both like in new jersey and outside of that space so again within diaspora and then going back to what should be a homeland but um the welcome he gets isn't exactly warm yeah so oscar just gets fucking wrecked this whole book man this guy he just got it hard. I don't know what's wrong with that kid, man. They just don't fuck with him. And that's just like, like Randy said, he's getting shitted on. He's like fat and shit. Like that, this is how they describe him. Yeah, like severely overweight. Like they go out of their way to tell you this kid is like very overweight. Like, you know, if you could think about someone you grew up with who was getting bullied, like Oscar had it worse. Like they just didn't fuck with that guy, man. And, and throughout the, whenever they mention him, there's nothing really good going on for the guy. You know, even he has a, a brief moment of, I guess, what is considered his love life, right? Which is like, I don't want to say late in, well, yeah, it's late in his life because it's the end of his fucking life, right? Like, yeah, and dude was like 23, 25. Yeah, like he's fresh out of college, guys. Like, so for starters, like he's just pretty much a lonely guy. Like, I think he had like a kiss one time when he was in like grade school and mm-hmm. he fucking 
got like super like hard like became some girl's best friend and he was clearly like in love with and he was getting shitted on by her and like her abusive boyfriend and then yeah so he goes through college seemingly finds no love and is pretty much just sad right and then he goes to dominican republic and finds what i guess was supposed to be life-changing then he gets fucking wrecked they fuck him up they like they whooped man and all kinds of shit because he gets caught up with some girl what the fuck is this guy like her owner or some shit because she's like a, a like a hooker or something right yeah she is but the guy that like uh that she was with that was her boyfriend and he was he had like still like sort of post dictatorship connections with the former because like you know she was like a hooker and then he i was like i don't know if he was like pimping her or whatever the fuck he had going on but pretty much this guy was salty as fuck and had i had oscar fucking whooped him so he goes out to his you know homeland right um where his mom grew up and shit and he gets he finds love which he could not find back home which is you know where he was born in jersey then he gets fucking wrecked and he goes back home and he tries to just kind of be like you know fuck it it happened i gotta move on with my life um but he's just like super depressed like man dude poor fucking oscar dude it's just shitty as fuck for him the whole way like and I the problem is is like you know we always talk about identity here is like Oscar can't figure out who the fuck he is no matter where he goes and I think that's like and even for Lola his sister um, that that poem in the beginning is just the end like you said what is it it says either I'm nobody or I'm a nation like I feel like if we could boil if we could boil down those two to one Oscar's a nobody. And Lola, like, you know, when she's in America, she's she's Dominican. When she's in Dominican Republic, she's American. So she's just a nation, you know? And Oscar is just, well, he's nobody. Like, even in the book, like, the guy has, like, the book, his name's in the book. And you lose him for almost the whole damn book. Yeah, yeah, Oscar definitely got, I mean... I, I think shitty hand in life would be an understatement, but I mean, that sounds pretty grim. So we'll just say shitty hand in life. Um, but yeah, he's his kind of interest in things, which I think was uh, really clever of Juno Diaz as a writer. They focus on like, I remember, I can't remember which page it was on. I was looking for it before we recorded, but I didn't take a note on it, but they were talking about like, Oscar's love for comic books and anime like he him and Junior actually they uh form a relationship I guess we'll say in college like Junior is Oscar's roommate for a year and Junior also has like this like kind of on again off again romantic thing with Lola um but Junior as we'll, you'll learn is a bit of a douchebag and very shitty with the women in his life and that'll come up in, again, our part two where we talk about um, representations of masculinity. But Oscar, when he's in his dorm with Junior, watches the movie Akira, uh, which is an anime film. It's really, actually really famous, very influential. But he watches it like a trillion fucking times. And Junior, he just keeps, he talks about how every time he walks in the room, he's like, damn, this guy's watching this again. Like, but Oscar, like, he's... Again, he's like so alone, not necessarily even just like socially, but he's so alone in his interests, or so we're made to believe. 
But then Junior, he kind of, he gives you cues into the fact that he's also interested in this shit, but he knows that he can't showcase that, which I think was like, it, it directly relates to what we've been talking about in almost every episode or podcast that like there are certain things when you grow up in hyper-masculine settings like that, that you just can't showcase, right? Like I talked about, and again, our author's insights episode and the outsider's episode that reading in the inner city, that shit just don't mix. And in the portion of the book that I read, which is very early on um, in the novel where Oscar is being made to seem like what Juno Diaz refers to as an X-Men, as a mutant for being a bookish boy of color in the ghetto. Like he's really put on this separate plane, almost a different planet for being interested in these things. And the section I was referring to earlier, that I can't remember the page, uh, Junior talks about like Oscar's love for genres. And it's this thing in writing where in the writing community and the literary community, especially where things like fantasy and sci-fi are seen as a lowbrow literature, which, you know, it's being challenged by people like George R.R. R. Martin uh, being nominated for Nobel several different times. But that's, that's a thing that he, that Juno Diaz really pushes very strongly against. Uh, and I think is the reason why he created such a tragic figure out of Oscar to showcase like, you know, we're overly demonizing these different things and these different qualities. And we're just not really giving the people in those realms a chance, right? Like Oscar, as Nelson told us, that motherfucker never had a chance in life ever. Like even when it seemed like he was doing, you know, something decent at the end, he still gets whooped on and, you know, eventually meets his demise, which is really, I mean, it's really shitty. Um, But so that's Oscar, right? We, We'll come back to him because he he ties together um, the entire arc of the story well. But Nelson mentioned Lola, so I want to kind of transition into her. Um, do you want to give us a description of Lola as a character, like what she's like, looks like? Uh, well, you know, Lola is his older sister. Yeah. Well, you know, in the book they they have her off as you know like. She's she's got like a strong foundation, you know, strong independent woman, you know, mm-hmm. and um, but obviously you'll find one of the most important parts about what's going on with her is her horrible, dangerously fucking toxic relationship with her mother, which is probably like the biggest thing that she has going on because she has her own stuff going on, you know. Mm-hmm. What I mean, she's like, you know trying to find love and trying to figure herself out and also trying to navigate the world by while being fucking belittled every second of the day by her mother, who she also stops and I guess still kind of looks up to in some weird ass fucking way because she's like, you know, she pretty much like, I, I'm sure a lot of people can relate to this. Like, well, you know, my mom held it down. You know what I mean? Yeah. Uh, she was a single, single mother or shit like that, you know? And, So she kind of has this like, which I think, honestly, I mean, I'm sure there's a lot that you feel to say about it. But I think like where you ever open a book or you hear someone talking about something and, you know, I know it's funny. uh, Penguin Random House on Instagram, they just put like, what was the first book that like um, that called to you or related to you? And of course, obviously, we choose books we can relate to because if not, how the fuck can we talk about them? Right. Yeah. Like never so early on could would you even like you know with the vignettes it's 
it's like this is like two different things. You know, the vignettes are so small, like you could find something somewhere, you know. Mm-hmm. What I mean? But this is like a full like the novel and pretty much anyone we know, anyone who knows us in their life, they can relate to that that relationship with the mother and the daughter. That shit is just hectic. You know what I mean? And it happens all the time. They're like, they belittle the daughters. They're calling them bitches and sluts and all that shit, whooping them all the time, but then wanting them to come back home and giving them these like these lose-lose scenarios. Like you could leave and be like on the streets, or you could stay here and do what the fuck I tell you, which is do nothing. You can't go nowhere. You can't get a job. You can't do this. You can't do that. And yeah, this goes back to our mom with our with um her relationship with our sister, which is garbage, I would say, right? Yeah, definitely toxic. You know, yet she has this respect for our mom, like, well, she held it down and she took care of us, which by the way, guys, that's wrong. <laughs> but, we're, but we're not gonna talk about that shit going further. But the point is, is that like, you know, that's what Lola's going through. Like she's trying to figure out who the fuck she is. And she's stuck in between these worlds where she's nobody or a nation. And she has this, like, she has, I think a few arcs for starters, before she gets sent off to the Dominican Republic, she got up out of there. Yeah. Yeah. She peeled out. She's like, man, fuck this mom. I'm gone. And she dipped off. And, um, without, I guess, giving in to whatever else happens to her, she dips off. I'm sure plenty of, the kids, I know plenty of kids, um, girls, when I was in school, would leave that have left their house and eventually went back, got beat the fuck up, and then just sucked it up and went back to the day-to-day. And um, I think what's most tragic about her situation in general is how it's her mom, who she looks up to more than anyone else, um, constantly just talks down to her, belittles her, and now she has that opinion of herself, right? And then, But she still has to try to maintain like feeling strong and shit like that. And when we're talking about like identity and stuff like that um, and how the rest of the world will beat you down, we really have to think about what happens in the households. You know what I mean? We got it rough. Everyone else got it out for us. But like our home is our, our environment. And that's usually why I think though those, which we, I don't think we've touched too much on with, with the could have been stories. Cause we just talk about how our, you know, our parents talk about what we could have been. Mm-hmm. I don't think we ever stop and think about, the things that our parents might have told us that deter us from changing that story. You know what I mean? The the things that they say and do that pretty much line us up to repeat that story. Yeah. Cause I feel like that's what was going on there. Like she was just dogging her all the time. You know what I mean? She never wants to be home. Hell, even when she was coming back, she was missing Oscar. And then she put herself in situations that weren't even beneficial to her just to get away from that. Like I said, it was like a lose-lose situation because she comes back. Obviously, you know what happened with the whole, like, when they came and got her. And she uh, she had that moment where she could have just been like, man, fuck this. Fuck you, mom. I'm out of here, right? But then she stopped like, oh, I couldn't do that because, you know, my mom, my hardworking mom, you know what I mean? Like, and she got drawn back in. And I just feel like for her, she's going through trying to be her own person but also being weighed down by that toxic relationship with her mother which is also like it's fucked up right the strongest relationship she has it's just unfortunate that it's not a good one yeah at at that point in time you know what i mean but that's like it's sort of unfortunate that that's what's molding her is that relationship 
Yeah, in a lot of ways, because that's that's like it's all she has, right? Like we we're told like they don't <clears throat> they don't even know who their father is. And, you know, that details of that get revealed when you look at their mother's history uh, and kind of the murkiness of it. But um, it's still very vague. But yeah, like it's the to go off the mention of um, like the home being the environment. Like I thought back on um, episode two, when we talk about the outsides and we talk about Derry as a character um, being, you know, having all this potential, but just completely held back by the fact that his parents died and then he had to look after his two younger brothers and keep all these other motherfuckers from, you know, fucking around in this gang and doing things they shouldn't have done, which, of course, we find out um, from reading the book and from the episode that he did not necessarily succeed in doing. Um, But yeah, in the case of Lola, like, one, her mother is the only elder she really has in her life, except with the exception of her grandmother, who she visits in, um, I guess, her great aunt, uh, but who they see as a grandmother, who she visits in the DR um, for a short period of time. But yeah, Lola has like you. You get very um, clearly in the beginning. She's fiercely independent, very intelligent. I believe she was on the track team. They mentioned it was a really good runner, strong competitor. But she just always got held back by her mother. And again, like when I was reading this, I was just like, God damn! Like this sounds so much like our mom sounds so much like so many of the moms or like parents that we kind of met in our community. And the, I remember this, this uh, essay that I read, I can't remember who it was by. I'll try to do some research to share it in the link um, later on, but I just remembered it. Um, But it was essay that talked about um, what it was that connected the Puerto Rican community and the black community when Puerto Ricans moved to New York, like why they just so strongly connected to each other. And the argument and the thesis of this essay was saying the link to slavery, right? It's like, I think a lot of people tend to neglect, especially because within our own cultures, um, that being our own Latinx cultures, um, people ignore the fact that slavery played such a huge role in our cultures and on our islands, right? In Puerto Rico, slavery didn't end until about 20 years after the United States, the Dominican Republic. I mean, the Caribbean in general took a significantly larger portion of slaves than North America did, right? But that's never talked about because there's strong anti-Blackness um, in our communities. But I reread, and we're going to read this book for a podcast episode in the future, but Between the World and Me by Ta-Nehisi Coates. And he talks about how he grew to understand that within uh, black communities and black households, like parents are so afraid that they're going to lose their children to the outside world, to outside forces like police, you know, the consumption of systemic racism, you know, whatever. We can add all the layers to the shit, classism, but that parents are willing to then beat their children so that the cops don't do it first or so that outside forces don't do it first. And I remember sometimes hearing my mom say shit like that, like, you know, it's either I do it or they do it. And it never really made sense at the time. But when you look at the history of Lola's mother and Oscar's mother, Belly, and we're told that when she was born black, right? In the Dominican Republic, we'll get into that 
black is not a thing you want to be because of their very strained relationship with Haiti um, and part of uh, Dominican history um, coming from the dictator Duhiel, um, where they had a massacre of Haitians. But she was born black and she, from the jump, gets negative treatment for it. There is a scene where she gets very severely beaten, uh, nearly beaten to death. And she is found by kind of like a caravan of musicians. And the first thing they say when they see her is they're guessing like what she could be in the middle of the road, bloody like that. And one thing they said at the end, they're like, no, worse yet, she could be a Haitian. Right. So she's already experienced this extreme racism, extreme abuse and neglect. And she then goes into New Jersey her daughter is fiercely independent. And of course, that doesn't justify what she's doing, but I couldn't help but connect those two things that that fear that their mother has, that if she doesn't rein them in, then she's going to lose them to outside forces. Because clearly it's a very toxic love, but you can tell their mother loves her. Um, but even still, like that was a sidetrack that I thought was necessary context. Lola is in a lot of ways like held back. And I think I mean, a lot of the figures in the book are tragic, but she just had so many opportunities to make her own way, but she just couldn't do it because I think more than being weighed down by her mother, she was weighed down by history. And that's a big focus of this book. So I'm going to kind of use that to jump into a uh, discussion we mentioned earlier, which is what opens up the book. So we talked earlier about the idea of a curse, or as it's referred to in the book, fuku. Um, and then we also get mention of the antithesis or the opposite of that uh, in a zafa, right? So kind of like a cure, I guess, or solution to the curse. So I'm going to read a quick section where he defines what, or Junior defines, our narrator, what fuku means, and then we'll jump into um, the discussion of that. So... Fuku Americanus, or more colloquially, Fuku, generally a curse or a doom of some kind, specifically the curse and the doom of the new world. So we have, that's literally the first paragraph of the book. So we're told that there is a curse that is going to be discussed. And then later he tells us that um, in the last days of Oscar's life, um, so again, you find out in the beginning of the book that this motherfucker dies very early. But in the last days of his life, he talked about um, the idea of being cursed. And I remember when I first read this, I remembered something that our brother Nico has told me on several occasions. You know, it always makes me laugh. But um, as a writer and just someone who's like really interested in the history of things, I, you know, I took some time to look into like the history and the idea of curses in new world culture or in Caribbean culture, because it's very prominent. But yeah, a brother Nico, he would say sometimes, he's like, man, I just feel like I'm cursed sometimes. He's like, you know, shit can't go right. And then, you know, I'll laugh about it, but I'm like, you know, how many people who have been incredibly disadvantaged have said this, right? What, like, what justification do they give for that, right? Then, you know, you go through the laundry list of shit of why they feel like they might be cursed or, you know, but in this book, this is basically the laundry list, right? Like we explain that Oscar doesn't even take up the majority of the book, but at least not literally, but I think figuratively he does in that we're focusing on Oscar's history, right? And there's this heavy 
fixation on what it means to be from a place that could be cursed due to one, it's history as beginning through slavery and colonization, right? First through the indigenous Tainos or the Arawak, and then bringing African slaves into the islands um, in order to build it up. And then being colonized by the United States, which he mentions, uh, which again, you should look up um, because in some ways it was quite brutal. Um, You can find images actually of the U.S. occupations of Haiti where the U.S. Marines literally like put machetes to people and clung them to doors as an example of what would happen if you opposed uh, U.S. occupation. So there's a very deep-rooted history of oppression and abuse and murder, right? And we get that through Oscar's uh, family's history and, you know, um, by extension, Oscar's history himself. But before we jump into that, there's this one section that I think is really just really kind of sums everything up for us nicely. And it's on page 80 of the book. Um, We're following Oscar's mother, um, Belly. So he says, Belly had the inchoate longings of nearly every adolescent escapist of an entire generation. But I ask you, so fucking what? No amount of wishful thinking was changing the cold hard fact that she was a teenage girl living in the Dominican Republic of Rafael Leonidas Trujillo Molina, the dictatingest dictator who ever dictated. This was a country, a society that had been designed to be virtually escape proof, Alcatraz of the Antilles. There weren't any Houdini holes in that platano curtain. Options as rare as Tainos and for irascible, dark-skinned flacas of modest, modest means, they were rarer still. So I feel like this is the perfect um, segue and example of what the fuku is to Oscar and how Union is relating that to us, right? One, I just wanted to focus on that line, dictating is dictator, whoever dictated. I fucking cried when I first read that. I was like, this shit is hilarious. But aside from that, we have um, one mention of what Nelson was just talking about, how Lolo kept trying to escape. And as he puts it here, he's like, nearly every adolescent escapist of an entire generation had these longings of going elsewhere because they knew what they were born into wasn't good enough. You know, all of us have felt that if you've grown up in a place that just isn't healthy for you, that is toxic, or if you're surrounded by toxic people, then we're told that there's no way that her life could be any better. Or, yeah, there's no way that her life can improve because she grew up under Trujillo and she also grew up black, right? They make a point to tell us she was dark skinned, so she had no chance. And in this, like the, at least for me, what I picked up, like the fuku in a lot of ways is, you know, you can break it up into several different things, but the things that sell out most to me were one, being born into this culture and in this society, but two, being black. Like that's something that's constantly mentioned. And I mentioned when Belly was found nearly dead, the guys that found her screamed, you know, like maybe she's a Haitian, like, you know, we can't interact with her if she is. Like the treatment of black bodies as inhumane, right? Which is extremely relevant to a lot of discussions that are happening in the country right now, which is why we thought this book would be perfect um, for discussion. But I want to focus on that bit of the fuku because I feel like, at least when I've had discussions with other people about this, 
the history is talked about a lot, but the anti-blackness is kind of glared over, which I think is kind of absurd, given that, again, the you can't go through more than five pages without someone mentioning, you know, there's a problem because this person is black or the skin was blacker than this or, you know, there's always some mention of that. So we're going to take some time to dive into that discussion about how the book approaches blackness and how it pushes back against it in some ways and how it relates um, to a lot of what people are talking about um, in the present political moment. Yeah. So like he says, like in the book, they they're always mentioning the fact that someone's black in here, whether it's uh, Lola's mom who has they describe her as black as fuck pretty much like she's black like yeah like the blackest person yeah she's like the blackest person wherever she is she's like the blackest person that kind of rolls over to anyone who's of color in this and it's really weird when you think about it because it was her right it was the mother who went to that who went to like a, a school right like the the nice school yeah her and lola so, yeah, they kind of got pushed into it. through. Yeah, it. so she went to this school, and there was, a, I guess, the lighter ones were there, you mm-hmm. know? And that really just goes to show you that it don't really matter where the fuck you are. The light and the dark, there's that there's that difference, and it it's all the difference in the world. Yeah, I used to just think, like, you know, growing up, um, and I'm sure if Lola was a real person, she could say the same shit, right? He'd grow up, and... Everyone always acts like the whites are racist and, you know, I mean, they don't like they don't like you because you're black. But, you know, just as well as I do that everyone there's a whole bunch of motherfuckers in our neighborhood who are just as racist, if not more. You know what I mean? Like they just got something to say about everybody. And even like Puerto Ricans will say something about the black Puerto Ricans or the Dominicans or the Cubans. And it's like. Man, if you think about it, I don't know why it's so deeply rooted in everything that there's so much anti-black going on. Because everyone's always trying to go hard on like, man, white people are so racist and shit. Acting like they don't got an aunt and uncle and shit that out there hanging out at the party while they're typing this shit, talking shit about the blacks right now. Like, because that's what they're doing. Like, our family does all the time, little shiesty motherfuckers. That's what they be on. Always talking some shit. You know what I mean? Like, and... That's that's something I think people just conveniently leave out all the time. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like they're they're trying to empower like fucking like, uh, yeah, man. Uh, these people are always talking shit about us and this and that. We can never catch a break, but th- their whole family gets together and they have the same biases. I was just talking about this. I think yesterday or the day before. Like you know, one of the issues that we have where we could try to get rid of this classism and uh, racism in our own minds is to stop with all these inherent biases we have about everybody you know what i mean because when our families get together and i'm sure plenty of people in the neighborhood um can say the same thing there's some racist ass fucking people and they're older they're the older generation is in our family and they are racist as fuck you know what i mean and that's what's going on here because it's not like she went from fucking you know let's talk about her mom because her mom was in the dominican republic right it's not like she was like fucking they plucked her and threw her to America in the beginning. She was dealing with that shit in the Dominican Republic where she was at, where she was born, where there's dark motherfuckers there, but there's also lighter ones. So they still had to make a point to talk about how she was so dark, you know, 
and they would were like, no, don't you know, don't touch her. She might be Haitian and shit like that. You know what I mean? In a place where she was born, so it's not like she was foreign in the sense that like we went somewhere else. Like if we were dark and we went into the you know the whitest place we could find ourselves in, or you know what I mean? Or like for example, Lola, she came from America, so you know she went to Dominican Republic, so they at least felt like well she's not really from here, right? But what's the excuse for the mom, right? Like she's she's from there. Like literally, she was born, she was she grew up there, but there was still that disconnect, and it was amongst her own people. And that just shows, like you said, like how much of uh, the anti-black it's super, it's all up in this book. Like every everyone is thinking that way. Everyone's in that mind. And I feel like I think what this book does a good job of for anyone who's gonna read it, or I guess at the time when it came out, is it it, it shed a little bit of light on the fact that, you know, that the anti-black and just racism and classism, like we talk about in general, it's everywhere. It's not just black and white. And so I say black and white because I was trying to say, you know, black, white and no gray area, but black and white and race also. Right. Because that's what everyone is like. Well, you know, they, they act like it's just that when really there's so much racism amongst the just the communities in general. And it's funny that I think about it because in science proceeding the end of the world, they still got a whole bunch of shit going on too, where they're just being pretty fucking racist. Yeah. And, you know, we talk about um, being minority groups, underrepresented groups and how, you know, uh, the, the majority. Right. They they don't fuck with us. Right. Shit. A lot of times it'd be our own people who don't even fuck with us. It's our own people who are, you know, segregating us and fucking making us feel like the outcasts. You know what I mean? And I think that's one. I think. Well, not I think that is a real issue that's going on in here because it's not like other people from somewhere else. You know, I mean, granted, they got a whole bunch of shit going on with you. Yeah. I mean, but I'm talking, you know how it is. Like, for example, uh, I know people are going to be like, what the fuck are you talking about? But like the president, they they could be the best president. They could be the worst president. Right. Fucking up the world or making the United United States a better place. Right. Everyone can have their opinions on that. Right. Mm -hmm. But the ghetto is always the ghetto. Right. It, through all the president presidential terms we've been alive for, the ghetto has remained a ghetto. Th- that's my opinion. Y'all want to get mad, talk shit, or agree? Put in the comments, though. So, you know what I mean? Like, that's how, how it is. Like, at the grand, large-scale things, yeah, people influence shit like that. But we're talking about, like, her and her little town or wherever the fuck she's at, right? Those people are are segregating each other and, you know, making comments on how black she is and stuff like that. That That's what I want to talk about. You know? Yeah, it's like more on the ground level. Yeah, at the ground level, because we always talk about how everything's so systemic and systematic and public policy and all this crazy shit. But let's just think about you with your homies and shit and your people and your aunts and uncles and their aunts and uncles and shit like that. Y'all know how it is. Y'all at the parties and shit. You got the aunts talking shit about old girl's hair or... This dude, how he ain't fucking nobody. Why is he so dark? He looks like a moreno and shit like that. Like, shut the fuck up, man. Why are you worried about me? Right? Like, why are you? Yeah. What do have to do with anything? But that's what they do. They alienate the fuck out of you at your own goddamn party. It, you, it'd be at your house. Your mom's there just talking. Oh, yeah, you know. Yeah, he's. Oh, he looks like a moreno these days. Who cares? Why y'all act like. They act like they're better, but then they're the same people who are like, oh, yeah, you know, everyone's racist. Like, man, shut your ass up. You too. You know what I mean? But that's what we never talk about. We never talk about how they be dogging motherfuckers. We be getting dogged in our own crib by our own people. Segregate. And then it's crazy. Like, not that it's understandable, but you think like, okay, you guys are 
racism obviously is because people have a prejudice against a certain race, right? Um, but how is it that your own people have that prejudice against you because of the way that you look? You know what I mean? It's they know, for example, she's Dominican. Oh, but you're so black. What the fuck? And that's just got to be just straight up garbage if you think about it. You know what I mean? Because then where do you belong? If if young people are are anti-black and you just happen to be dark as fuck, where do you belong then? Yeah, it is extremely prominent. I mean, they're like the word that has been like popping up for it in recent years, at least when I was in college was used was colorism, like within specific communities. Um, for example, within the black community, the trope of a light skinned black guy being softer than the dark skinned black guy within the Puerto Rican community, like darker Puerto Ricans. I mean, it's pretty similar seen as more aggressive. Um, I remember for me, like I had one of my really good friends in high school, you know, I won't say any names and shit, but like one of my really good friends in high school, every fucking time I went to his house, his mother made a point because they were quote white Puerto Ricans, right? she made a point of asking like, are you black though? Like, and I'm like, why the fuck does that matter? And I'm like, you know, I'm Puerto Rican just like you. And you know, one time she went as far as saying, nah, like we're not the same. And then his grandmother would ask me in Spanish, you know, if I was a Moreno and I'm like, I don't understand what this very strong fixation on what I am, you know, just based on how I look, right? Cause my features come out differently. I'm like, let's not pretend like you don't have a dark cousin. Like, you don't have a black cousin. Like, one of your grandparents ain't black. I'm like, shit, I'll be the first to admit that I have black grandparents. But I'm like, there's so many motherfuckers. And I listen to a Code Switch podcast by NPR, which all y'all should listen to. They have a lot of dope shit there where they just candidly dive into racial relations and just kind of, you know, people from underrepresented backgrounds navigating um, the world. But they had this episode on blackness in Puerto Rico for part of their census uh, data or a census series for 2020. And they played this song by this woman. I can't remember exactly how it went. It was fully in Spanish. But one of the lines is, like, my grandmother, my black grandmother, she sits in the living room, right? She's at the center of my household. Like, I know who she is, and I accept who she is, and I embrace that. Like, but where does your grandmother sit? Is she even, like, is she allowed beyond the kitchen, right? And I thought that line was interesting in that, like, it showcases that it's like, okay, we'll take the aspects of this culture that we really like, right? Like for people, for Puerto Ricans who are racist to black Puerto Ricans, it's like, you have to remember that a lot of your music comes directly from African cultures that influence and that foster these things on the island, right? Like we have to remember that in the United States, a lot of the fashion that we get, and even the globe, when I was in Spain, a lot of motherfuckers, and I, I would tell my friends this, like a lot of people here are dressing how we dress in the hood 10 years ago. The only difference is, is that they're not getting shit for it, whereas we got shat on for it, right? So it's like, we're going to co-op the culture, but we're going to give you shit for it. And we're not going to give you the credit. Like, I mean, this goes into anything, right? Fucking trap music. People will shit on it, but every pop song now has a trap beat. I'm like, it's one of those things where, like, it's so deep rooted. And, you know, it's when, you know, people talk about systematic racism, oppressions. But, like, I mean, I remember so many times just sitting in a room with my uncle, our father's brother, and him making comments about black people. And no one in the room would say anything. But the moment you speak up, you're being too sensitive or 
you know, you're being soft or just like, oh, what, are you black? Why do you care about this? And, you know, but it's funny because when you look at the family photos and this shit always made me laugh, you'd see that the grandparents are black. That's like this, it's almost like this insistence um, within these cultures. I, I mean, as Nelson said, like we point the fingers like so high up because we're afraid to point the fingers where in a lot of cases they belong, right? Like no one's denying that there isn't systemic racism. We've been talking about that shit every episode of this podcast. But what this book does is it points the finger, like one saying like it's systematic in a lot of the places that we come from, right? In the case of DR, in the case of Puerto Rico. And then we jump into this new place where it's even more deeply rooted, but it's rooted by the same system, right? Like all these places, the one link that they have in common is slavery, but people are so afraid to talk about it. Like, it's just the truth, though. And nothing else links our communities together, right? And if you say it's all, it's the anti-Blackness. But again, it goes back to this one system. And that's the biggest system that's feeding all these things, right? And it's gotten so ingrained into our culture that, like, we don't even acknowledge it in ourselves anymore. And it's so convenient to blame white people. But I'm like, shit, I could point my finger at white Puerto Ricans. Plenty that have made comments like that, right? I, I want to take this moment to like urge people that are within these communities to actually look within your communities and acknowledge, like, don't just fucking, you know, post a buzzing photo on Instagram that says Latinx, hashtag Latinx or Black Lives Matter. No, actually look at your community and consider how, one, they're allowing these oppressions and these, I mean, in a lot of ways, false opinions and negative opinions to fester within the community and what you're actually doing to push back against that. It's easy enough to call out all your white friends for all the shit they're saying, but you know, how about calling out your racist uncle, calling out shit, maybe even your moms. It's a lot more difficult to do, but I think it's essential to do if we actually want to get to the root cause of that problem, right? Like I don't fuck with most of my family because I don't agree with the things they say even about me. You know, it's fucked up. But again, it's something that I think as a people, we have to do like we can't we can't just put the onus only on black people and we can't pretend that we're not connected to that same history. And I feel like once we dive into that and this book is a very good segue to do so. So I encourage you all to read it. Like once we dive into that, I think we'll start to actually will actually accomplish real change. Right. Grassroots change. Like as Nelson was saying, like we need to stop pointing all our fingers upward and pretending as if on the ground level, we're not fucking shit up similarly. But to walk back from that rant. So this book, again, one of the central focuses, like the curse, the fuku, is um, the idea of being black, right? Like you can find, I mean, shit, I'd enjoy it if someone actually counted how many times anti-blackness came up in the book because that'd be a long-ass list. But sorry, the close things out for this section. I want to talk about um, what we think, because there's mention of Azafa, right? The idea of um, a solution or a cure to the curse, right? And I kind of want to talk about that because I feel like it's not necessarily clear in the book what Azafa was supposed to be. But I mean, you know, of course, naturally, uh, doing a book podcast, one, we have to talk about, but two, I think um, interpretations could be um, interesting and good discussion. All right. Well, for starters, just to touch on what Randy said, um, 
about how we just got to stop pointing the finger. Um, honestly, just as a whole, we do way too good of a job of complaining and blaming other people and really forgetting about ourselves in that equation. Yeah. Man. You know what I mean? Like, we're like, man, fuck this. Y'all out here treating us like shit. We don't get a fair shake. And then we out there dogging our own people and shit. And also, let's not act like we don't have those same inherent biases in our mind because we grew up on it. You can't help but think about some dumb shit every now and then. Yeah, yeah that's a good point. That's the truth. Like, don't. there's someone, it might have been a white person, might have been a black person, something. So at some point in time, you walk past them and you expected something to happen just because you've seen them and they look the way that they look. So cut the shit, guys. It happens with everyone. Because what we we that's just the climate everyone lives in. It's just you know if you don't choose to fucking make every decision based on that, and you know what is it they call them? colorism? We have too many isms. They're all the same fucking thing. There's just too many of them. By the end of the day, like I like you said, don't just post a picture because that's just popping. Um, you know, if you're gonna do something, I mean, you don't. I'm not saying you gotta post it, right? You don't have to post shit. You should probably just do it though. And the reason why is because like we spend a lot of time, which is cool, you know. We spend a lot of time calling people out on their shit, especially now this cancel culture and all that shit that people got going on. They go nuts, man. They be going hard on yeah. people for the smallest of infractions. Meanwhile, your whole inner circle is on straight up bullshit, saying things way worse than other people. Yet somehow you feel that someone who don't fucking know you is more accountable to your feelings than your own folks. And that makes no sense. So let's just, just take a big ass step back for a second here and think, okay, we want this change. So, 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 so bad. Right. And we're just putting all that pressure on people who we know don't even give a fuck. Right. But if we care so much, why don't we start making the change internally so that at least we can stop doing the shit and we'll at least stop pushing ourselves into the system so we could at least stop it amongst ourselves. So at least maybe we're a little more unified or at least we have, there's that safe space. Cause that's the thing, man, there's so much shit we talked about this. You're right. Right. This episode is definitely going to be a twofer. So uh, back to way back when we were talking about how the parents are like, you know, I'd rather, you know, pretty much, Whoop the kids, keep them inside so that the cops don't do it. Honestly, that's so fucked because you just lose either way, yeah. right? Uh, I have four kids. I have three daughters and a son. I can't imagine trying to keep my kids hold up. But also at the same time, I don't want to imagine what will happen to them if they go out into the world. This shit, off of my personal experiences, a lot of things happen to me that I would n- like to not happen to my kids, you know, especially my son, Right. Because if he's anything like me, then holy fuck, I'm in for some shitty, stressful fucking years. Because I'll tell you one thing. Our mom did not keep us in the house. In fact, she just kind of threw us away. So we went out there and we experienced whatever it is that we experienced. Personally, I got wrecked up and shot, stabbed, beaten, beaten by cops, the whole nine. You know what I mean? And I could go on a whole rant and complain and start blaming institutions and shit like that. But again, back to the point, we got to think about the shit that we do to contribute to this. And I'll tell you one thing. I get it. You know, people are out there um, attacking people for no reason and shit like that. And I get that. But when we're talking about how it's so deeply ingrained in their culture and society about how they see us, we really have to stop and think about how it's ingrained in our culture and society and how we see each other. Because we'd be out here on that straight up bullshit. Think about 
the protests that were going on and shit. And then at, after some point in time, at least out here in Chicago, I don't know about in California, but out here in Chicago and Little Village and shit, they were like, eventually, dude, it became a, a blacks versus Mexican thing out here in Little Village. Like, if, if I see you and you're black, we're going to break your shit. And if I see you and you're Mexican, it's over with. And I think back to high school and Foreman. You remember the black versus yeah, uh, Hispanic? I do remember that shit. I remember I wasn't even in high school yet, guys. And some, some guys walked up to me. And it's funny because I get this question all the time, if I'm black or not. And I'm like, no, nah, I'm not black. They're like, oh, you Puerto Rican? I said, yeah. And he just bust me right in my mouth and i start fighting so i'm like what the fuck is wrong with this guy right and then they're like oh yeah tell all you and all you puerto rican motherfuckers that we coming for y'all and i'm like all right so we we fought whatever we went down i, I went back to the hood and shit i'm like yo what the fuck is up with them dudes over there at fucking foreman i guess they decided they wanted to hate hispanics and we and us we decided we wanted to hate blacks i guess right because that's who we we're fighting about and in these protests about you know, police brutality and all this shit that we had going on, George Floyd and all that, they just end up fighting each other again, right? And I try my best to really just stay out of the whole political mess, but I'm really not going to get into the grand scheme of things. But the point is that I'm trying to make here is, is that we have to think about how we do shit too. Because if we're holding everybody accountable right now, right? That's what we're doing as a nation. We're calling motherfuckers out, right? We don't got to put it on the book, right? We don't got to start a war with our own people, right? But we should really look at what we're doing though. Because honestly, I just believe that what we need to be doing right now is rewriting the narratives for ourselves. We've been talking about this shit since episode one. We got to rewrite the narratives for ourselves. We, I think we stand a better chance. Like you said, if we're going to have those grassroots change. We stand a better chance if we start changing the people who are immediately around us. If we start with ourselves and bridge outward, instead of hopping on the book or Twitter and shit and be like, Yo, motherfucker, it's your turn. We on your ass right now. And just going hard on them. You know what I mean? Because, okay, maybe we force some sort of apology or whatever it is that they do when they get called out, right? Which anyone could just tweet some shit. Or maybe we force somebody to, uh, again, post a, post a picture. Like you said, a fucking Latinx or, or Black Lives Matter or the whole blackout photo yeah. that they were doing. You know what I mean? Uh, yeah, you could force someone to do that. But you know just as well as I do, that doesn't really... Like it does, not that it doesn't mean anything, but if they feel that much pressure, they could put it up and not mean it. They cannot feel it. However, we really have to be critical with ourselves, though, because if we're calling motherfuckers out, like you said, but you ain't calling out your uncle and he's at he's at your crib right now, cracking black jokes and shit. Are you really for the cause then? If your own people, people you have you have direct access to, if you're not calling them on your shit, how are we ever going to make that real change? Because let's say we wake up in a world where everyone we called out um, like that, it's over with. Everyone we called out, they done changed their, they changed the narrative. They just woke up and forgot all the, the, the racist, um, you know, prejudices, everything. They just forgot it all, right? You want to know what would be the problem then? Our people, our families, our uncles, our aunts, and all their racist bullshit, they're still going to have it. You see what I'm saying? Because if if you have to hold people accountable to get rid of it, we got to hold ourselves accountable. Because this book isn't talking about like some dude just strolling, you know, some dude didn't come out of fucking like Harvard or some shit and just go erase a whole fucking, you know, go down to the Dominican Republic and just start shitting on people. You know what I mean? It was just, these are all people from uh, pretty much the same place. Except, you know, once we went to yeah. Jersey, but they're all yeah, Dominican. Yeah, the whole fucking book's about Dominicans. And you think about it, like you said, people, our own friends who are Puerto Rican or hell, even our friends who are, who are black, they're always asking, are you black or what? 
as if that's like the qualification to get in. And you don't think about when you're younger, you're just like, all right, man, no, I'm not black. I get it. People think I look black because my hair and stuff like that. But they're asking because they care because they are going to use whatever your race is to decide whether or not they like you. And whether or not they can trust you. Exactly. So when you come to your house, they're like, you Puerto Rican for real? Mm-hmm. Motherfucker, I could be Puerto Rican and rob your ass right now. Fuck does it matter? You know what I'm saying? Like, you know, and that's what I just think. Like, you know, I was just talking about it on, on the page earlier um, the other day. Like, you know, we got to go out and get shit for ourselves. You know what I mean? That knowledge. Essentially, the only thing we have control of in truth is what we do. And what, who we choose to, you know, the actions we choose to take. And I think we're doing a disservice to our own cause uh, by not calling out the people closest to us who are on that bullshit. You know what I mean? And not being critical enough with ourselves to realize that uh, obviously we all come with our own inherent biases. You know what I mean? And really have to think about rewriting the narrative. Like you said, this shit's homegrown. Maybe we should just try rewriting the narrative there and hopefully it'll spread because someone's always going to get missed, right? But we know who are, but you, like, you know what I'm saying? Like, you, you, you said with our uncle, like, you have targets. We have to, everyone who's listening to this shit, when we post it, obviously, and when we post, everyone, someone's going to, one of their family is going to pop right in their head, right? Well, that should be the person that you're coming hard at. Because you guys are, they're like, if it's your uncle and shit, then you have kids, they just continuously plant that seed of that racism. Because like they say, it, it, you know, the, they teach you racism. You know what I mean? You don't wake up and have a, a bias. Can't even do it, fam. Can't fucks with you. You know what I'm saying? My doctor, you Puerto Rican, bro, don't touch me no more, bro. Move around. You're a fucking baby. It just don't work that way. But when you're at parties and shit and your uncle's cracking black jokes all day and saying, what does it matter? You don't need to care, little boy. You're not black, fam. You're Puerto Rican, bro. That's a black problem. So then you grow up like, yeah, man, you know, fuck it, bro. I don't give a fuck what's going on with them. You can't trust them anyway. And that's the anti-black shit that we're talking about in, in this book. And honestly, I don't even remember what the hell we were supposed to be talking about. And we're talking about the curse. I mean, which again, like it's, I, I mean, every example we've just given, right? Like we, when we're talking about rewriting narratives, right? You can't rewrite a narrative without knowing the history of said narrative. It's impossible. You're always going to fail at it, right? And... I think what a lot of people neglect is that in order to rewrite history, you have to directly confront it. Like you have to dig deep into those wounds, even if the motherfuckers burn, even if you lose something as a result of it, like you're gaining so much more and that all the people that are coming after you are not going to have to deal with this same bullshit. Like that's what this book is doing, right? Like we've mentioned several times, Oscar is the central focus of the book by name and do extension of his history. But we learn about his grandfather, his great aunt, his mother, his sister. Like we learn the history of all these other people and how they led up to Oscar. And when you look at Oscar's life, I feel like his life isn't that bad. He goes to college, like he goes to chill at the DR for summers. He spends like three months writing and shit, but he is boggled down by all this history. And he knows that this shit is pushing back against him and against his progress. And that Without confronting it, he can't actually get out of that shit. And so, again, he has the opportunity to just leave after things with the woman he was seeing didn't go well. But he decided to go right back. And he was like, no, fuck that. Like, instead of just constantly running from this shit, I'm just going to go hit it head on. And he dies as a result. But 
he at the end we get a letter from uh like a mention of a letter from oscar that union talks about and he says that all these books he has he's written all these things uh in order to tell the story differently like that's literally oscar trying to rewrite his history but he got killed as a result of it right like he wasn't really given that chance but he still fought for the shit in his case he lost his life in my case i don't i don't talk to that uncle i don't talk to really any of those family members because i'm like including my father i'm like you're racist and you're a prick and you don't want to acknowledge that you're racist so i can't interact with you because like again for me i acknowledge the blackness in my life and in my genealogy but a lot of people are too afraid to do that because you're convinced that it has a negative connotation. Just as in our last episode of the Author's Insights, when we're talking with Sandra, she was talking about mental health and she's saying that people won't actually open up about it because you're convinced that then that makes you weaker. Again, having a stronger grasp of your history can only make you stronger because then you know how to approach your life and you know how to approach the people who are trying to combat you in the process of rewriting that narrative. Like, And that's what's important to understand both, I mean, about this current political moment and what you can do, but just about this book. Literally, like Yunya tells us, like, I'm writing this book about Oscar. Oscar failed in rewriting a narrative, so I'm doing the shit for him. Like, he has all the inside scoop about his family, even though he fucked around with Lola here and there, but Lola ain't telling him this shit. Like, so he took the time to look into Oscar's history and rewrite that shit. And whether or not it's an accurate history or a good history, like, that doesn't matter. Like, the point of this is, is that he actually attempted it. And now if someone disagrees with it, they can push back against that. And then, you know, the narrative continues. If they feel like certain things are missing, then you can jump into that. But they actually proactively work at changing the narrative, right? Um, is there anything else you want to say before we close this out? Yeah, so I, I made a brief mention of this on the on our social media, um, the, the information for anything is out there for us these days. You know what I mean? Um, honestly, it's way too abundant for us to not be informed about our history and shit like that. And, uh, that being said, I don't know pretty much shit. So that means I gotta stop talking shit and look it up myself. Right. The information is out there for us. So if there was ever a time to be informed, it would be now because we have that access. And which also means like, you know, again, Randy said, you can't rewrite the narrative unless you have, you know, that inside scoop on the original narrative. You know what I mean? So we should really take that time. Like right now, we should take this time to inform ourselves as best as we can. So we could rewrite that narrative for everything. And again, like he said, Oscar went hard and, and and was like, I'm rewriting, I'm rewriting the narrative. And he he got the shit under the stick. Um unfortunately for some people in life, that's the that's the price to pay. Like, you know, for trying to rewrite your narrative. Um we see it happen all the time, you know what I mean? People really try to take control uh, of their circumstances and, and terrible, terrible things do happen to them. And uh I guess at some point we all just have to make a decision whether or not we want to live the lives that we're living now or we want to make that change. Having kids and shit, I try not to do things that are so dangerous, right? And that's why we're doing this. Just so you guys know, this is us, homies of lit, and everything we have that comes after this and everything that's involved in the process that we're building right now is us taking small steps towards rewriting the narrative. The only narratives we we can rewrite are the ones we know. And right now, Randy knows the narrative of his life up until this point. I know the narrative of my life up to this point. And we just so happen to have had 
the pleasure as well as the curse, as Nico calls it, as plenty of people who grew up in the same ghettos as us and ghettos that are like it. So that's why people relate to us, not because we have everyone's history down, but because if we've learned anything is that history has been repeating itself constantly. We really just have to make that shift because if it repeats itself, right, if we write ourselves a good enough narrative, if, if we, you know, change the way um, our neighborhoods are, not the whole world, just our neighborhoods, at least that neighborhood stays that way generationally. You know what I mean? Because we just inherit whatever problems came into that neighborhood. You know, yeah. the, the hood was the hood before we got there. And unless we do something about it, it's going to be the hood after we leave. You know, after we die, obviously we're gone, right? But uh, so we really just have to think, like, where are you now? I think about now, like, people like, why are you doing this? Uh, honestly, man, you know, my my oldest is, is 12. If she were 18 right now, this isn't the world I'd want her to be, uh, you know, tackling, quote unquote, on her own. You know, this isn't the adulthood. I don't want her dealing with all the shit going on. I take it I have six years to make something gigantic change in the way that they see the world. You know what yeah. I mean? A world different from ours. Um, and then it just goes down from six six years and I got like seven. And then, you know, the youngest ones. I have a good, you know, 16 years to totally rewrite the world for, for the youngest ones. Uh, but obviously the goal is to have already rewritten that world by the time my oldest becomes 18, right? And that's because... I can't even tell you the age when we had to, you know, quote unquote, grow up. Shit hit the fan for us pretty early. Shit, like, I'd say 11 for me. <laughs> yeah. You know what I'm saying? I'd say around 10, 11 as well, you know. And that's that we had already seen some shit that kids that are, that people that are our age right now hadn't seen already. But, you know, we had just thought it was normal. You know, I just feel like around 10 or 11, I started to realize that this shit was just not right, not normal. Yeah, we really got to educate ourselves. But you know what? If you're stopping and you're thinking like, you know what? This is that's huge. That that that's a lot to look up. I don't know where to start. Let's just let's just start with how you came up. Wh- whoever you are listening, how you came up, the the things that happened to you. Start talking to your family about their history because if it's one thing, your older family members they most likely just love to talk their fucking ass off and exaggerate like a motherfucker. But take what sounds most likely to have happened. Yeah. Like our dad swears he was walking miles and miles and all these storms that were the coldest, the coldest days in history, even though, as you guys, I'm sure, you know, uh, they keep record of what the coldest days in history were. And my dad is way <laughs> off. So, um, you know, the guy's hilarious like that. The point is, is that, you know, just just really just ask about the history. Ask, you know, ask whoever you can figure it out how they grew up. What was the same? And then also think about what it is that they were teaching you or how we say how, you know, we have generational poverty and just you know could have been stories just think about all those things that you feel you've inherited you've inherited because of where you came from and how we came up and then just take that moment and think well how am i going to rewrite this shit same thing like rewriting your could have been story but think about rewriting that for the sake of the world not just for the sake of you and i think that's a good perfect place to start on that path yeah i agree like i think uh let's look at my final remarks that um, at least one way I think about it, because I, I remember I volunteered on campus one time for kind of like this environmental, with the environmental club, like this initiative to um, really push people to recycle, right? And now I was walking around with some motherfucker, I can't remember who it was, and they tossed a plastic bottle on the ground. There's a recycling bin like 10 feet away. 
I was like, yo, what the fuck? Like, you know, we literally did all this work for you to just go toss this one thing. And people will say like, you know, I'm one person, like me tossing this one bottle on the ground won't make that much of an impact. And I think that's exactly the mentality that people should not have like that. I'm only one person. I can't make that big of an impact. Like, you know, everyone has someone in their life that looks up to them, right? That looks to them as an example. Like, so we have to, I think we have to take that more into account and utilize that influence to promote positive change, right? Like there could be, I I always try to um, make a point to say positive changes when people talk about change, like negative change is definitely a possibility, right? But we want to proactively encourage positive change. And I think a big step in that is just acknowledging how much impact you actually have, right? Because we can think of plenty of people who have outsized influence in their lives, including presidents, right? Like they take up so much of the attention, but like we really have to look at like who are the people we influence. And, and even in my case, like when I talked to our little sister, we talked about like two weeks ago about the protests that were happening and she made a comment about uh, the looting that was happening. She's like, oh, I feel like that's, you know, something we should focus on. And I just, you know, I took the time to actually explain the situation more thoroughly to her so she could understand why everything was happening and why looting was connected to that, right? So then she had a broader understanding. She might still have the opinion she has, but, you know, I know that for her, I'm a point of influence. So, again... When we're writing in there, there's just really think about one, what your history is or what the history is and two, who you're influencing. Um, but that'll wrap up our, uh, the first part of this episode. Cause again, there are going to be two parts. The second part will be significantly shorter. We promise. And it will focus primarily on depictions of masculinity within the book. The contrast between Oscar, who's seen as a softer male um and we'll read sections where they talk about like oscar just being undominican for being the type of guy he is and then junior for being like too masculine and sort of how um in the end they both influence each other into more um oscar junior into positive change with how he conducts himself in the world especially in his interactions with women so per usual you can like and follow all of our um, social media accounts and get access to our content at Homies Alit on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook. Um, we've talked about a lot of things um, in this episode, so feel free to shoot us emails. You can uh, gain access to them on our website, homiesalit.com through Squarespace. You can comment on any of the posts that we put up for marketing, or you can send us direct messages. We will respond to them. We already have for several users. And just share with us what, um, how, one, this um, discussion has impacted how you view your role in the current political moments. I feel like everyone, uh, it's a moment where a lot of people, a lot more people than usual are getting involved. So we would like to hear those narratives. And again, we uh, can directly comment to them, um, respond to them through the DMs, or if um, we feel like it can spark a bigger discussion, we can do that through live videos. Um, and of course, get your copies of this book. We both got these through our local bookstores. Um, it's a really popular book, and it won the Pulitzer, so you can find it just about anywhere. And yeah, stay tuned for part two, which will be released a few days after um, this one. All right, guys. 
Signing out.